Hello, welcome to Herd Art Materials. I'm Faye, hi. And I'm Rachel, hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode, we're interviewing Russell Dodgson, the VFX supervisor on the His Dark Materials TV show on BBC and HBO. There will be spoilers in this episode, so if you haven't read all of the books and seen the TV show, pop back when you have, and we'll be here. Oh my god. Hi, Rich. Hi, Faye. So this is ridiculously exciting. (laughs) Yes, yes, we are so excited for you folks to hear this interview. Russell was amazing to speak to. We've actually had this in the pipeline since, I want to say last year. Yeah, when we were recording the episodes and speaking very passionately about our feelings about Mrs. Coulter's monkey, Russell got in touch just to say thanks because he worked hard on it. And we were like, oh my God, you worked on the show. Please let us ask you all the questions. And he finally has a calendars of lined up. And I'm so excited. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's so lovely and so forthcoming with so much great information. I've had so many questions answered. He was the sweetest. It was amazing. You'll listen in a second. We won't keep you too long, but he was the nicest man. He encouraged us to ask questions about things that we didn't like in the show. We were like, oh, <laughs> got my goose question answered so listen listen to find out yes yes definitely again we don't really have much to say up in this intro other than we're excited for you to listen to this so should we just get straight into it yeah we will get out of the way without further ado here is the interview with russell dodgson Well, hi, Russell. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us. It's um, an absolute pleasure. We're really excited to to have you and to learn all about the amazing visual effects. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> you may not say the same thing by the time we're done. Oh, I'm sure we will. You may just, you may just feel pity. <laughs> no, just, just kidding. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to launch straight into it. So first question, really, because a lot of our listeners and us, really, we kind of know the basics of what a visual effects supervisor does but if you could just give us kind of an overview of what your job is on the show and how that works that would be really great so i can i'll start with telling you what a traditional visual effects supervisor does and then i think my role sort of sits slightly differently on this show which is kind of one of the big appeals for it so uh, fundamentally a visual effects supervisor's job is to help inform and develop the methods by which you shoot visual effects sequences and scenes during production and a lot of that comes down to working with directors producers and showrunners to try and hit the nice balance between creativity flexibility and cost and then their secondary role after that is then once all of that footage has been acquired and also while you're acquiring it is making sure you've got all of the fundamental building blocks you need as you shoot to make sure that the people who are doing the effects then down the road can do their jobs then after that you have to review all the work brief all the animation yada 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 do that for 2000 individual times and then you've got a tv show fundamentally then for me on this it's slightly different because the way that bad wolf who are the production company on the show the way that they operate is jane tranter who's kind of the head honcho she likes to kind of surround herself with people that she considers to be her show running team so instead of there being one showrunner, I mean, traditionally, your writer would be your lead writer would be your showrunner, but that is not Jack Thorne. He's very open. He's like, I am not a showrunner. It's not what he wants to do. So there is a group of us who she kind of defers the showrunning of the show to, 
but then she has the final say on top. And I am lucky enough that they accepted me into that group when I started. And it means that my job on top of the things that I'm doing is I get involved a lot in the kind of the story and the decisions that get made always from a visual effects perspective in the same way Joel Collins who's an EP and the production designer he does the same thing but from a production design perspective but we are very much like a little hive mind of people that sort of love the books love the show and just kind of want to make it happen and find a way through thick or thin to do so. That perfectly leads into our next question which is we always have to ask have you read the books? And if so, where were you in your life when you first read them? And how did they impact you? Um, I read them. I'm, okay, this is going to sound terrible. I'm not a massive reader. You're both like, just hang up. Um, <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. No, no. So, so I do, I, I can read. I learnt. Um, and it's fine. I read, I read, a, I kind of don't read a lot. I'm not like an avid reader. I kind of try, I try to split my time between things that I love. And actually, you know, I really love storytelling, but I actually like the visual form of it. So I watch a lot of TV and a lot of film, but I also um, tend to like to do things myself. So I sit down and I, yeah, I like to draw and scribble and work on visual effects shots. And I like to do exercise and all of the things that are in a normal life. So I try not to it's, it doesn't it's not like my top thing to do and actually when I do read I tend to read factual books but I happened to stumble across the trilogy I guess in 2001 ish and I remember I remember finishing the amber spyglass on the tube in London and finding it quite emotional and really you know quite powerful can't me- I can't I can't remember if I publicly wept <laughs> it's happened so many times in my life that it all becomes a blur. But I'll tell you what's interesting is that coming back to it and doing the show, there's a couple of interesting things. So I remember after reading it, I was always like, I really want to do the visual effects on that show. And then the film came out and I wasn't a massive fan of it, as a lot of people weren't. It didn't represent the, the essence of the book. There was some really good work in it, visual effects wise, which I also have to say, because the company that I work for did the visual effects for the first film. <laughs> and uh, and they, won the, they won the Oscar for the Bears, basically. And I was like, oh man, I've missed my chance. And, and then eventually I ended up joining the company, Frame Store, that does the visual effects. And um, I kind of worked in commercials for a long time. And then I, then I started sort of the TV division at Frame Store. And then within three years of starting the TV division, this turned up. So I was brilliant. like, you know, what are the odds? And then the other thing that was interesting is that when I read reread the books for the show, I dug out all my old copies and I realized that I was reading them at the same time that I just met my wife. We had a long distance relationship. She was in New York while I was here for about five, six years. And all of my books have got letters to her written in the front as I, when I lent her the books. So she'd come over, I'd write a story, I'd write like a letter in the front of the book and then give it to her and she'd take it back to America, read it, like it, bring it back, give it back to me. So I've got like these three books with these little notes in the front. It's really cute. That sounds That's lovely, great. especially considering how the books end up. Mm. We, we love the long distance. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I know. We broke up yeah. after six months. No, I'm just kidding. We, we, got, <laughs> we got married. We've got kids. So, yeah, it's sort of got a nice sort of place in my kind of, you know, in, I guess, my story, you could say. It's a great story and it's really empowering. And, you know, if I wasn't too jaded. I was still young enough to kind of enjoy it and like the kind of aspiration of, you know, the, the idea of the importance of youth and listening to youth and the power of youth. And so, yeah, it's a good, it's a classic for me. All the people that we spoke to on the show so far have amazing stories around how they first read the books. Like we were talking to Dan Jackson and he was telling us about how he named his daughter Lyra and then he got to meet Philip and told him and amazing. And what you were saying earlier as well about like everyone being fans, we watched the making of documentary today and it's just so clear how everyone that worked on the show is such a huge fan of it. And that's really special, I think, to other fans that are watching it. It's nice to know that it's in good hands. 
Yeah, I think the thing is, is that, I mean, I'm not going to lie, TV shows are really hard to make. To do an adaptation and take a text, especially one that is so thematically kind of complex as what Pullman wrote. And this is no insult at all to Pullman. He's not always massively consistent. I mean, if you ask him, like, why is this thing like this? He's like, you can't build, was it, what is he, he says, you can't build castles in the air out of logic. <laughs> you know and i think that's a great and i think that's a great quote and it fits in but actually trying to create logic across the original three books to start with is hard you know i mean because because what's important is the story and the narrative and sometimes the details and the law aren't as important um, but when you try and visualize them and bring them to screen and you kind of you stumble you know and it's hard it's really hard and you can never please everyone but there's the one thing i can say is these, the the show is made out of love full stop whether people like it or hate it, it's made out of love. You know what I mean? Everybody loves it. Everybody wants it to be good. And everybody has a passion for the material. So yeah, it really shares as well. Definitely. Good. Can you talk a little around how you go about meshing the computer effects in with the practical effects as well? So how do they support each other? Basically, when you shoot visual effects, you have a couple of different approaches. You can say, screw it. You can do anything. We'll do it all in 3D and spend lots of money on it. Or what you say is you say, we're going to try and shoot as much real with as much real camera work and real lensing and real, and you know, and all the kind of eccentricities and errors and great stuff you get from filming things for real. Um, I sit in the second camp hundred percent. So I think you shoot everything you can shoot, you get everything you can for real. You have the happy accidents, you have the mistakes that you have to fix. You know, the thing that you didn't think you had to suddenly sort out, you have to, but such is life. But you've always got something real that grounds it. So when it comes to the SFX, which is so SFX basically is anything real and practical that happens on set that needs to be managed. So that would be um, explosions and snow falling or air mortars going off or any of that stuff, fire, pyro. Same with stunts. I'd always rather have a stunt guy do something, even if we end up replacing him, it gives us something real to like hold on to. And it keeps us accountable for reality. Because if you have nothing real, you can just sort of excuse almost anything and then you haven't done a good job. But then a big part of it as well is that, especially in this show, because the demons are so important, you know, we, we always, the first thing when we had this meeting and it's why we all got on so well is that I had a very similar vision for the demons than I think that, that I think Jane had. And that is that they're not VFX. They're just characters in the show and they're honest and they're not caricatures and they're not meant to be funny. They're not comic relief. They're funny if they're funny as characters. They're not funny because they're characters. I kind of knew how I wanted that to be on screen and the level I wanted the animation to get to and, and all of those things before I even started. And the only way you can do that is if the actors are performing to it. So if you don't offer something to the actors to do their job, you're in trouble. There's a famous uh, saying someone once said to me is they said, uh, Russ, shit in, shit out. <laughs> right so if you do a bad if you haven't got a good start you're gonna have a you're gonna have a bad finish right so um if, if an actor hasn't got a good eye line you can't fix it well you can fix it but then you have to spend loads of money fixing it and everybody thinks it looks weird at the end the puppeteering was so important on the show and it's a whole you know it's quite a sprawling broad topic that but fundamentally if we didn't have the puppets and we didn't have something real on set you can feel the the fakeness you can feel the, the artifice immediately just as soon as they get on set there's just a different attitude towards those characters and there's a sun there is an affection that comes to them and there's this there's this idea i don't know if you've ever heard that there's this like a classic example in storytelling especially when you use animals there's this idea of something being inscrutable so it's like if you got a um if you had a photograph of a cow's eye and i showed that to you and i said this cow is really sad you would go oh the poor cow mm -hmm. then if i got that same picture and showed it to someone else and said that cow's really happy they'd be like oh man that's a really happy cow right <laughs> And that's because we put our emotions onto the things we see. And that's why we pick certain animals to use because we haven't put our emotions onto those animals as much as like cats and dogs. And that's also the reason why if you do a really good puppet head sculpt, 
and you just make its head turn, it's inquisitive. If you make it head go up, it's curious. If you make its head go down, it's you can you can do all of that, and and the actors respond to it really really well. That was really important. So for me, it's like start from a real base whether it's puppets or explosions and then fix it all afterwards if you have to, but start with something real. VFX is super duper alien to me. Anything that exists on computers separate from me is so alien. (laughs) I'm I'm glad um... you're taking care of the technology part of this call. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) I personally am a sculptor, though, so I was wondering if you ever use physical sculptural maquettes as reference points for your VFX. Do you like to have a 3D object with you or do you tend to like to build everything inside the world of the computer? So so are you a clay sculptor? Do you sculpt in clay? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do you do maquettes? Yeah, maquettes and small models and stuff. Nice. That's cool. I've just I've just started learning. I did my first ear two oh, days ago. It's, you've always got to start with an ear. I showed it's, I showed it to my child. She said, "Oh, it's an ear." I see that as a success. Definitely. That's yeah. A very good success. Uh, the answer to the question is yes and no. I mean, so if you think if like the history of visual effects is one where you know ten years ago or whenever or ten years ago and preceding that when we did this film. Um, we've still got the sculpt of Yorick from the first film in our office. We've got five or six different sculpts of different types of ideas. And back then we would sculpt them and then we would scan them. And the scan would be the beginning of the model because that was a much easier way because we didn't have digital sculpting tools. Now we do, but it's a real mix. I mean, sometimes you'll sculpt ahead and it will be perfect. And you'll say, right, that is the character. Other times you just develop it in CG. On this show, we found some of the character in the sculpts, but most of it we did in digital sculpting. But that's really only because we started just from real animals you know we 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 weren't creating a creature we weren't inventing a creature we were just trying to reference something real so if we went down the sculpting route i think we'd have ended up with two caricatured uh, creature um not necessarily but um i think i think there's a temptation there but we do definitely use maquettes a lot and you know a lot of the conceptualizing of creatures gets done in maquettes because people like to see things and turn them around and although the strange thing is we 3d print them a lot as well now so we can um we there's a i mean the 3d sculpting tool we normally use is called z brush so we sculpt in that and then we can 3d print that maquette and have a look at it and we can do them at different sizes almost you know so it's very efficient it's not necessarily as artistic or as noble an artistic pursuit i guess oh no z brush is a whole different it's one of those things that i would love to learn and the way that i can't get my head around it is i'm so used to the pressure of putting a tool onto clay of course, of and course, yeah. where haptic things are going to start coming in to like help you you can get really lovely like rigs that help to create the pressure for when you're pressing the tools into the digital clay that blow my mind (laughs) and that is the future that's the only way i mean the thing is 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 the z brush side of it is um i mean a lot of the z brush sculptors i know they are really amazing sculptors it's a a similar art it takes the same Mm -hmm. eye it takes the same love and they are they are equally i think artistic i think it's the uh there's something strange about 3d printing to me still where it just doesn't feel quite right because it's has it lacks an organic quality that I like about you know the physical models and it's the weight as well. But yeah, so anyway, so that's how the sculpting comes into it. And 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 when we when we make the puppets, we we have to sculpt a head, and that's all done in clay. So it's done in either clay, and then it's normally either cast out of resin or something like that. And then we have to find a sculpt that is really good for the actors because with performance it can look angry or sad or happy so you have to find a really neutral expression that's still characterful which is a definite art and the, and the guys that, have, that did all the sculpts they're brilliant they're really amazing and they did such a beautiful job of creating these really sort of delicate expressions on these you know and on these very real characters yorick we made full size actually out of fiberglass there's a uh, i've got a picture of my kids sitting on it oh <laughs> um, yeah it's massive 
absolutely massive. We have been burning to ask this question because we are huge fans of Mrs. Coulter and her demon. And we wanted to finally ask you just about the process of making that demon because we were kind of awestruck when we saw it on the show and how amazing it looked and how emotive it was when it didn't speak. Yeah, I don't know if you can talk us through maybe the process of creating Mrs. Coulter's demon. And whether it was a deliberate choice to make people feel for him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But he's horrible. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So if you meet Ruth Wilson, you up your game. It happens naturally, right? She is a powerhouse, right? She is amazing. She is intelligent. She is um, opinionated and smart. And she really makes you want to deliver good work it, we all want to do that anyway but sometimes you just want to you just want to make them proud of you fundamentally right <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah and she's one of those characters and because she embraced the demon connection so much in the way she thought about the character um, and because she was so um open to working with brian and they built a really great relationship brian fisher it meant that it was really easy to dig deep and i mean we did a thing where um it was actually after we shot. Everybody thinks that all this stuff happens before, but it doesn't because TV schedules are crazy. So, I mean, I, I didn't start working on this show till five weeks before we filmed. I had five weeks of prep when I normally get six months. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so okay. it was really yeah. intense. It's a really intense start. So I, you know, my first time working with Ruth was, I did, we did a little bit in like a couple of days rehearsal and then we were on set working it out. Now, as soon as you start seeing the rushes for how she plays Mrs. Coulter and how complex she makes her and how, you know, I, to me, Again, I, I think she obliterates any sense of Mrs. Coulter that I ever had from the book, and I always thought she was amazing in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think yeah. she changes. She 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 really levels that up, and it makes you it makes you see a lot of opportunity in the animation and in the character. So, you know, what we did is what an example of the process to show how we did some of it is we did a I, I got her to come into Frame Store, and I basically just interviewed her about her relationship with the monkey. And it seems like it's silly, but we did this for our animators, right? So what we did is I sat down and we did a deep dive and I went all the way back to when she was a kid. We've been begging for a call to backstory. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I'm not going to dig in just because never that might end up on television. I really hope it. I really hope that's something that someone one day suggests. Anyway, yeah. so for example, people's demons settle when they're children. So I got I dug out the Chinese calendar description of a monkey, like all the characteristics that makes you the year of the monkey, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are all these things like playful, cheeky, all of these things that the Mrs. Coulter we now know aren't. Some things there's there's a there's a level of malicious and mal- malevolence that remains, right? That you get in monkeys, but um, fundamentally, a lot of the the kind of things you associate with a cute little monkey, they're not there. So then we talked about what it is that maybe made that meant went made that go away you know and 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 what it is that was left like what characteristics were left what characteristics got replaced and then we talked about this idea of her separating from her monkey and the idea that you know by pushing her emotional self away she found comfort to the point where distance was more comfortable than closeness which then led to how we block the way they move around a room so when they come in a room like when they're at home they don't hang out together right you don't see them at home like sitting on a couch cuddled up right Mm. but when they're out in public they play house because they're clever so when they're out the monkey is a status demon stays next to her and and so so a really good example of this is there's a scene in i think episode four where she's walking down the stairs in the magisterium on her way to go and see cardinal starrick and she slaps the monkey's hand away yeah that broke my heart a little bit (laughs) good that's the goal um so if you think about that and it's sort of like the way that we describe that and the reason why we went to that place is that Mrs. Coulter is calculated, right? 
So she's at home and she knows how she's going to play the room and work the room with Cardinal Sturrock and um, Father McPhail. But what she can't control is what happens between turning up at the magisterium and going into that room. And Father Garrett in that scene says something snide to her that she doesn't expect and it throws her emotionally and she slaps the monkey, right? So it creates a moment where she doesn't want to be close to it because it's it's making her emotions come out. So So even though like in the end, it's a bit of nuanced animation and a hand slap, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And, and so what we did is we did this whole long interview with her. And then I gave that interview and published it to all of our animators so they could listen to it and understand the story so that when they were animating it, everything they do is flavored by that conversation. You know, so they have it in their brains subconsciously or actively, whichever way you want to look at it. And then the other thing about it is, I, it's, it's kind of the thing I say all the time, but it's because it's true, is that if you've got to put a monkey on camera when Miss, when Ruth Wilson is delivering sort of nuanced emotional performance you've got a really high chance of screwing that up do you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. if, if, if you were like you're doing like a monologue from apocalypse now and someone said yeah just chuck a baboon in it but like ruin it <laughs> yeah you know so so there's a pressure there so and the good news is is that i don't come as a supervisor i don't really come from a place of someone that actually loves visual effects i just like story and i just happen to have found visual effects as my way to kind of be involved in story so i don't really have any interest in visual effects upstaging things in fact i just like it when they support things so doing the monkey and doing a lot of the demons actually is just a big exercise in restraint you know like most performances and nice notes i gave were just about doing less than more you know it was like right now this scene is this moment is about ruth wilson don't make the monkey move its head. Just just literally make it breathe slightly differently and drop its shoulders a touch and just just like look off line just a touch. And that will give us the emotion we need, but don't upstage Ruth. But then there's other times where you want to support it. So after Pan and the monkey have a fight, or Pan gets a kick in, whichever way you want to look at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a moment where after Ruth has revealed the news about Azriel being a dad, there's a tiny bit of nuanced animation in there that when I saw that. It was one of the first times that I, one of the first sort of scenes, whole scenes that I saw. And I went, we, okay, we've got it right. And that is, there's a point where Lyra's sitting there and she's really upset and she's processing all of this stuff in her head. And Ruth is sitting there and Ruth isn't prepared to give emotional comfort, but she wants to because she's still a mother at her heart, right? Mm-hmm. And the monkey just does this little kind of slightly lean forward, moves its foot forward a little bit like it wants to go to Lyra and then it kind of backs away again. It's a tiny little thing, right? You're probably probably imperceptible. But when I watched it, it flavoured the scene a little bit. Yeah, it was just like a little bit of little bit of seasoning that I thought really helped, you know? And it reinforced her performance rather than tried to change it or take over it. And it honoured the kind of the truth of that scene, I think. So that's kind of all we try and do is just sort of stay true to what the actors are doing and what the scene's about. And she's a joy to work with as well. She's awesome. We've got a big Ruth Wilson fan club here. <laughs> Similarly, in terms of the... Because I would say, obviously, the monkey and Pan are some of the bigger animated characters. And Yorick, specifically, is a huge animated character in size and everything else. How was the process of creating him, considering he has to be so tough and also you have to fall in love with him? He's he's this protective character. And yeah, he's got to be so brutal. Was that a real struggle to try and convey all of those things in a bear? Well, it's, what's interesting is like you start from a place where like polar bears are pretty cute, and and you watch a but then you watch a nature documentary, and you're like, eh, polar bears are also pretty vicious. So, and and if you if you read Pullman again, like Yorick is way more stoic in the books. Yeah, he's much more even in his in his language in his tone. The funny thing is, is when you when you make television or you make it visual, you can have him be stoic, 
but he can also be funny because he's not trying to be funny. He just happens to be funny. So there's that scene where he's like, where Lyra says, um, I'm not heavy. And he's like, I'm not a horse. Right. (laughs) It's not a joke, but it's funny because it's Yorick and it's a bear saying I'm not a horse and it's just funny. Right. And then, and Lee's reaction kind of helps it, but it's funny before it even hits Lee. So, I mean, what we did is we started from, he's a broken alcoholic living in an alleyway. What does that mean? Yeah. So it's kind of like, what does that mean? What does that do to your posture? Do you ever stand up? Do you look people in the eye? No. Right. So the first scene when he talks to Lyra, he doesn't look her in the eye once. Even when he's staring at her, he's looking at her chest. The eye line is off, you know, an eye line. Um, And there's one moment, which is when he walks away, which is really hard to even spot, to be honest, when he says, I'm not for sale. But as he walks away, his eyes just touch her, just touch her eye line just for a second. Then they go because he wants to. He wants to have that pride again, but he can't. So, you know, you make him a bit more unbalanced because he's a bit drunk. So he doesn't move quite as smoothly and he's a bit more jittery. You keep his his head low. You keep his eye line off. Then you kind of go, well, he wouldn't clean himself because he's got no pride. So you give him a bit of alopecia on his fur and you make him a bit more matted. And you say, right, that's our starting point. And you say, our end point is he's the king of the bears, right? So then Mm -hmm. his posture goes up. He cleans himself a bit. He gets a bit cleaner over the episodes. He stands up tall. He'll look people in the eye. His tone deepens a bit, you know, and and, and his tone becomes a bit more kind of confident as well. So you do that. And then you throw in the middle of that, you throw in a scene when he eats an egg with a kid where you would, I mean, like, I don't like to be hyperbolic but i don't think i've ever seen a tv show try and do a chat between a bear and a kid for like four minutes or whatever it is <laughs> yeah you know where it's just a chat there's nothing else there's nothing it's literally performance and that's it and you know i watched it and every time i watch it i go within for the first two shots i go that's pretty good cg and i think about the things that i might change or might tweak because you you never finish a shot you just put it on tv but at the same time after two shots, I'm just watching a scene between a bear and a kid. And that means that, again, the guys did a great job and they did the animators and the artists did a great job and they did the work right, you know? In terms of building an arc, you just have to, especially with those animals, you just have to find physicality as the root. And and you have to think about those things like, what does he eat? Where does he sort of, he sleeps here, so what does that mean? He's in a, you know, when you put him in the ironworks, make the ironworks too small for him so nothing's convenient. Because I never liked it in the, um, in the film. He was in this, like, massive alleyway. And it's like, well, let's just put him in a really small alleyway. <laughs> You know, so it's claustrophobic and rubbish. It looks like a rubbish way of living. That's how it is, you know. So I think that, you know, that's the kind of the route through. And then everything else comes because, you know, like it's really easy to make a polar bear look angry. They've got massive teeth, you know. Mm-hmm. It's harder to make a polar bear look like it's thinking. So to me, like, for example, the most successful shots for me, full stop, is in the Sisselman, in, this, uh, in the scene when he attacks the Sisselman and gives him a gives him a, a Leonardo DiCaprio revenant ragging. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> after he's done the attack, which is all very good, and the animation's great, and the team did a great thing, and it's you know solid, really good, solid work. At the end of it, Lee and Lyra are talking to him, and he's thinking, and he's got his head down, and you're just looking up at him, and it's a camera shot that's really low, and you're just looking at a bear thinking about what they're saying. And the and what I tend to do is I watch those scenes with no sound, and I look at it, and I go, can I see a creature thinking? In fact, can I think? Can I guess what he's thinking? And I watch that stuff, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, he's thinking about it. He doesn't quite know what to do. He's listening though, and he's thinking about it. You know, and then you and then then you put the sound on, and you go. The words are just the words, but actually, you should be able to read most of it from physicality. And even with Pan and the monkey, you should be able to know what's going on without the sound. Because you know, if I muted you while you're listening, I could probably guess whether you're bored or whether you're, you know. <laughs> so anyway, so that's how we approach Yorick. And also, feel free, by the way, while we're doing this, if there's any things you don't like about the show like nagging things that bother you that you want to ask about you can ask any uncomfortable question you like 
I will answer them as honestly or I just won't answer them. My one question, I think when, you, question. when you bring that up. <laughs> Do it. Why did we lose our favourite goose? Okay, fair enough. That's a good that's a good one. That's actually predominantly my fault. Oh no. Do you just not like geese? Um, <laughs> what did the geese do to you? <laughs> I mean, I've just watched Babe Pig in the City too much. No, um, <laughs> basically, we when we were when we were casting them all, and we're casting all the demons, and we're looking at all the animals. There's a number of things like the the last thing you look at is cost because cost is always everyone always assumes that it's about money. It's not. We wanted you know like the witches. The thing that's interesting about the witches in the material is that in the books they seem very very proactive. But actually, they're not as proactive as you think they are. Because, you know, there's a lot of things like they try and heal Will's hand in book two, but it doesn't quite work. And, you know, they kind of, they're not always like the kung fu ass kicking witches that you want them to be. And when you put them on screen, you suddenly realize that you need to do that. You need to level them up a bit and give them an edge. So having a goose suddenly didn't seem as good (laughs) as having something maybe a bit more edgy. Then on top of that, you have to think about framing, right? So Mm -hmm. if you want to do a single like a shot of an animal, it helps if it feels like they've got shoulders because it, it grounds them on the screen because there's nothing worse than a shot that's just got like a stick coming up <laughs> with a head on the end. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's not, as, it's not as flattering and it's harder to build a, like a shot reverse shot type situation out of that. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is the voice. We wanted the voice to be pointed. We didn't want to have to put like some weird goose sort of thing going on. So between all of those things, we were like, we know everybody will love the goose and everybody will expect a goose but they're just not going to get a goose. (laughs) And that's the choice we're making. And if someone else wants to make it again, they can give them a goose. But we're confident in our decision that whether you think you care or you don't care, we respect that people care about it, but we have to make a choice, you know, and that's it. And everyone will fundamentally live with it. That's true. (laughs) You know? I'll get get over it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mean, and you know what? We don't make the decisions lightly. Like, I know that if I suggest that, like, someone's going to be upset about it. But I also know that there's a lot of people that haven't read the books that you just want to enjoy the show and you want to make sure you're delivering something that feels grounded and never goes into a silly place in those really, you know, that scene when, like, Kaiser's meant to be, like, I know Kaiser is meant to be stately. And and so when that conversation with Father Corum, where, like, you want there to be, like, you know, at the end of the day, like, Father Corum and Serafina had a relationship. And we're having a conversation between Father Corum and Kaiser, where you've kind of got to play a bit of kind of weird, awkward attraction between an old guy and a bird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And then if that bird is a, a goose. goose. It's a goose. So we, we, don't, okay. it, we, we, don't, we don't make the choices callously. We think about them. And, you know, like I said, you can't please everybody, but you just do your best. It's still done out of love. That's yeah, the point. definitely. I mean, our one theory as to why we didn't get a goose is because geese are a bit ridiculous. So no, they have yeah. the, they, they, they have, they're, they're on the sort of the spectrum of, of, of silliness, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. so there's too many geese memes in the world already. As exactly, well. and there's too many like clips of like poor little kids being chased by them. <laughs> yeah, and there's yeah, yeah. and there is and there is genuinely the babe pig in the city problem, which is just like they're kind of like you know Jemima puddled up. Oh, amazing! Oh, Rach, I'm so glad you got an answer. Finally, I'm so glad. <laughs> it may not be the answer you want, but it's the answer you got. <laughs> we I'm, I'm happy with yeah. that. I'm satisfied. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I would love to know how you went about working out how demons change because pan is one of the few demons we see that does a lot of shifting on screen and i know that in the film they had quite a magical sparkly dusty vibe and when that happened one of the things we really loved in one of our favorite shots is a moment when pan jumps off the bed and like halfway through falling turns into a bird i think Mm. 
Yeah. Or is it vice versa? It's, if it's a bed, it's the one where he turns into a moth when he goes up to listen in the vent. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. And just those transitions are lovely. I'm gonna not going to lie. It's pretty simple. It's just movement. You just make it movement based. You just make it that, you know, like, it's really lovely when things happen because they flow. When I look at shots, I come from like a, a weird background. Like, you know, my background is, you know, I, I used to be a break dancer, strangely. Right. That was what I did when I was in, wow. when I was in my twenties. Right. <laughs> and I've always done like martial arts and always done really physical things. Right. So I really love movement. Right. So that's what I see. So it's like when I hear music, when I hear music, I see movement. And when I see movement, I hear music kind of thing. That's how my brain works. I'm not suggesting I'm some kind of savant. I'm just saying that that's kind of how I can describe <laughs> the way that I respond to those things best. So when I look at shots, I look at them mostly based on like whether the rhythm feels right. You know, like you've got one person moving like this, one person moving like this, and this thing moving across the free- screen, it doesn't quite have the right flow. So a lot of the time I'll brief things like, you know, it's kind of like bum, 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 bum. That's what I want. I want it to feel like da 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 dum. That's the rhythm of what I want the creature to do. Everything else you can find, you know. So when we were doing the um the transformations, I just knew, you know, like if a bird, if a if a ermine jumps off a table and turns into a bird, or especially into a moth, the ermine's heavier, so it's going to drop and then it's going to come up. And that's the flow that feels natural because it, as the weight changes from one thing to another, there's a point when it's just like falling and that looks right and that feels right and it flows. And when Pan's running or, and he jumps, and he jumps behind Lyra's feet and he turns from one thing to another, it just feels natural. It's just a flow. And then one of the only other things we did is we always made sure that as many of the forms as possible as Pan of Pan had a, sh- had a streak of white. I don't know if you notice it. So the ermine's obviously white. Mm-hmm. The Arctic tern is white. The uh, even the pine martin has like a white crest. So and the moth was a whiter moth. So that when it jumps and changes, you have a consistent color that blends between the two. So it just becomes like a mush of white. So that was one of the other kind of ways we did it. And you know, I mean, we we I also said to the um when I when we started doing it early on, and there's there's a couple of times in the film when it they do a really really nice job in the original film, and there's a couple of times when it makes me cry. You, you there's a there's this idea of it's like it's the Transformers problem. It's the idea of uh, volume preservation. So if like if I was this big, how do I become something this big? So the answer is is you can't. It looks stupid. Right, you should never see something. You should never see a mouse morph to a cat, and halfway you've got like halfway between a mouse and a cat. Yeah, it's just gross, <laughs> right? It's going to always, it's gonna, always going to look horrible. Turns out looking like the thing. Exactly. So the answer is, don't show it. Don't, yeah. don't betray your audience. Don't try and be clever. Just have it happen off screen. You know, so you don't question it because you know you don't. You know, the audience think they want to see it, but they don't want to see it because when they see it, they'll think it looks bad because it will always look bad no matter how good technology is because it's just it's like one thing of one size becoming one thing of another, which is why when Pan jumps off the bed and turns into a moth, the actual point of transformation is behind the edge of the bed. You might not even notice it. And it worked for you, right? Because you don't yeah, care. Yeah. So that's how we did the transformations. I'm going to move on to some questions that we've had from Twitter and Instagram and Reddit, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. Our friends at the Dark Material podcast, they wanted to know what creations were you the most proud of in the final series? Uh, the monkey, definitely. Yorick, definitely. And Pan. I mean, I can't. I mean, it's it's like asking to pick between your kids. But <laughs> I think the I think the monkey because it's the hardest thing to pull off because it doesn't have it. It's got no lines. It's got the most complicated sort of like nuanced character to play against. It's got a real arc. Like when we were even when we were like working on the monkey, we were thinking about if we have these rules at the beginning. Like, how do you show that Mrs. Coulter over time becomes more comfortable with herself by by the end of the third book so she can be holding her monkey when she dies? Spoiler. Um, <laughs> so at some point, that monkey, if, if the monkey's always with her and close to her, it means nothing when they're hugging at the end, which is why visually we've made a two, you know, two to three season plan to slowly bring them together. So the fact that it takes that much thought 
I love. And the fact that it's that hard, I love. And the fact that the guys did such such an amazing job of doing it, I love. So that's probably the one. But then, you know, I liked all of it. I mean, they're, they're such great little characters to work with and they tell story and they move the plot along and they make you feel something. So it's good. So it's hard to pick. Fair. The, mon- <laughs> the, mo- the monkey, though, probably. <laughs> Another one from Twitter is Twittergazi. Say, how much of the visual rendering of VFX shots is already decided when you start working on them? So I guess how far do you plan this before you start and do, do many shots end up on the cutting room floor? The answer to that is that we have um, a production department called the painting practice who do the concepts and the color and the concept design. And that means that a lot of the things are predetermined as in. So we, we, you know, we work out, for example, what the statues around Oxford are roughly going to look like the ones of the demons on the top of the buildings. We work out how we're going to change Oxford to go from one place to another. Um, and that then gets handed over normally as a still frame, as a brief to the visual effects artists who turn it from something that isn't to a final quality into something that you can have on TV and, you know, lives and breathe. There are other things though, that we just work out afterwards, you know, like we the, the window at the end and how that was, you know, that is always the stuff that everybody's talking about until you're like right we've really got to do it because we deliver this in a week sort of thing (laughs) so you know like how that how the windows and how the world and especially the rift at the end the anomaly as we call it at the end between the two between you know um lyra's world and you know chisigatsi they're the things that are under constant development like they never stop and the day you finish them he's like yeah i think it's gonna be okay and then you deliver it and then you hopefully get a good answer so yeah i'd say that it's a real mix but we try and plan as much as we can um, and loads of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. Like so many of the things that people say, why is that not in the show? We filmed it. It just doesn't work on TV. There's a lot of things that we have, because also you have to think about pace. You know, you have to think about tempo and rhythm of a se- of an episode and a series. And you have to think about things like, like there was a classic example where somebody said, when Lyra gets let out of the intercision machine, why doesn't she pick up Pan and hold him? Totally fair question. Makes total sense when you're reading a book and 10 seconds can last a page. But 10 seconds in TV lasts 10 seconds. So when she comes out of that thing, you've got two choices. It's like you either do the bit where she holds Pan and gives him a hug and everyone goes, oh, that's cute. Or you have the, or, or you work on the look between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra, which is actually the story. And you've got to choose what you do in those 10 seconds. Because one thing, it can't be about two things. It can't be about Pan and Lyra and Lyra and Mrs. Coulter. It's one or the other. So you have to pick, you have to kill a baby in that case because you have to kill one of the things that you really want to do because everybody wants it and you know you're going to disappoint someone who's like, why isn't that happening? And the reason is because it it, it muddies the scene and it reduces clarity in storytelling. Again, a book is different to a TV show in quite a big way. I think that was one of the other things that what you just mentioned is what we'd seen actually, you mentioned that you'd seen it as well, people saying, oh, why didn't Lyra and Pan hug? Or why didn't she pick him up as much? Sometimes it's because... I mean, there's also the thing that, you know, like picking up an animal is like highly complex. It's not just the fact that it's not the fact that it just costs money. I mean, yeah, it costs money, but you know what? It doesn't cost that much more money, but it's harder to shoot. It takes longer to film. It makes the, you know, suddenly Daphne is now not only thinking about performing against an actor, but she's now thinking about this thing that she's holding, you know, and that, and it changes how they perform. So you just got to, you know, again, you've got to make it, you've got to make it worth it. They always say, what is it? The juice has got to be worth the squeeze. (laughs) <laughs> which I think is a great, I, I love that saying. I think it's brilliant. And I think I use it far too often, but it's true. It's like, you know, is it worth slowing down the shoot, breaking Daphne's rhythm, changing the way she's performing just to have her hold an animal for mm, one shot? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, and it, it also comes to the, um, the, the, the age old question of like, why aren't there more demons? Why is the world not full of demons? Right. And it's for a number of reasons. Like when they made the original film, 
they had way more demons than they actually have in the film. They cut them out because they were annoying, right? Because they, they they distracted you from the story. You have a scene and then you've got so many things to look at. There's literally twice the number of inhabitants in exactly. one room, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it affects it affects the framing of shots, it affects the blocking of shots. And then not to not to mention the fact that they you know to create them does cost money right so there's a financial hit every time you do it so if you have a scene where you go oh we'll just put him on his shoulder but then it's like shot reverse shot bird on a shoulder shot reverse shot bird on a shoulder and you just do that 30 times that's 30 shots of a bird and actually at the end of the day the bird doesn't do anything it just sits on a shoulder so now you've got the world's most expensive extra and and so then you can either do that and give people the world's most expensive extra over and over again or you can do the bear battle at the end which we didn't see in the film you know it's like the money you know it's not it's not an infinite pot these things cost a fortune to make we, there's never enough money to make a show there's only ever as much as you manage to get over the line the not enough demons question is the one that i get asked the most actually <laughs> and and the, and and the answer is always you can have more but you get less of something else and normally it's something that's story and plot based which is more damaging. And it's just distracting. We did some shots where we put lots of demons in and then we were like, yeah, let's take some demons out because God, <laughs> it's like, it's not about that. We're not making Dr. Doolittle. In fact, <laughs> in fact, ironically, we were making part of Dr. Doolittle at the time <laughs> um, in another part of our company. And, you know, but we that wasn't our goal. So Another question from Twitter. So Gear Tanner asked, what was the hardest thing to do in visual effects for star materials that's a very tricky question I, I normally just say it's the volume of work because there's no show that has this much creature work in it creature work's the hardest type of work to do you know if you put a space a spaceship in a shot it's like yeah i can put a spaceship in a shot you can do it all day it's fine it's easy comparatively but creature work is really hard and then when you have 1500 creature shots to do you know and a lot of those shots have got multiple creatures in and they're talking with main actors that's really hard you know, and, and, and you're tracking so many different characters like arcs and making sure they're consistent, making sure Pan, who's been animated by this person, feels like the same Pan that's been animated by this person, making sure they don't feel like animals because they're not animals, they're demons. So there has to be, it, it's, I always say that it's like animal, then remove the basic needs to like go to the toilet, eat and mate, and then replace that with a human level, a human level of curiosity and focus. And that's yeah. why we didn't use live animals, even to fill out the scene. Because you put them in, all it takes. I mean, I, I was on. I remember doing a recce with Tom Hooper on the first week of me being on the show, when we were still discussing using real animals. By about ten minutes earlier, he'd said to me, "Why aren't we using real animals again?" And I was sitting on a wall, and there was a goose walking past, and it was sniffing another goose's butt. And I, ironically, it was a goose. And I was like, <laughs> "And I was like, that's why we're not using real animals." And he looked at it and he yeah. went, "Fair enough." Yeah. Because 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 <laughs> we spend more money painting them out than we would have spent actually hiring them. Let alone the fact that you know. You can't put a bird in a room with a cat and a dog. It doesn't work. So then you have to shoot them all separately. Then the shoot slows down. Then you don't shoot as much. And then everybody asks where part of the story is. So, yeah. Anyway, the answer to the question is the volume was really, really hard. And the window at the end to come to a conclusion as to how we wanted it to look was hard as well. Another one from Twitter is uh, Jaden Marvel asks, did the visualization of dust change throughout the production? I hope that doesn't mean throughout the episodes because I don't think we, <laughs> I don't think we messed up that bad. Um, <laughs> I think more about how you've approached the, co the conceptualization yeah. of it. Yeah, it, it, it has, and you know, obviously, the further we're getting into it, the more we're 
dealing with that. It, I mean, we, we, the, I mean, the most clear representation of dust, obviously, is when the demons die. You know, I mean, that's always a really tricky thing. It's like who's it, like from a storytelling perspective when you when you're a um when you're directing stuff, you're always trying to think of whose point of view it is. And being that no one in the world can see dust, why can we see the dust? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's one of those weird things. It's like in the film when everybody's turning into glitter. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't, I don't know if I like it. So we, we again, went for something subtle, something as subtle as we could. We also came up with, I think, something that gives us enough flexibility to really play with it over the seasons as it becomes more of a character rather than a thing that you're seeing, you know, because by the time you get to the third book, if we hopefully get to make it and there's a bunch of like, you know, Malefas looking at Sraff flying over the top of the forest, then you can really turn that into a character, you know. So we haven't tied ourselves down too much. Brilliant. We've had quite a few cheeky questions, which we are <laughs> obliged to ask and you are under no obligation to answer, but we have to try. Do it. Go on. Somebody just straight out just wants to know, what will the angels look like? Oh, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something that you have been considering for yourself for a long time in more of an abstract term so you're not spoiling anything <laughs> uh not as much i've been wondering about what malefas will look like um mm. the um oh my god that's I, a whole other I, I, I know um i um i think what's interesting about the angels all i'll say is it's tricky because um philip writes them very differently depending on the scene and just saying that like angels who are more powerful are more corporeal or more present is not really enough to work with so like in book two it's like they're a play on the light and you can barely see them and you can only see them in sunset and then the next book one of them's being carried around in Azriel's fortress you know and is physical enough to be picked up so all i can say is that we definitely have been thinking about it a lot and working on it to try and work out what we think it could be but it's anybody's guess really yeah watch this space <laughs> exactly <laughs> i'm gonna have a flick through these questions that we got from reddit to see what we haven't already asked you no no one's eviscerated us for not having the bears wear armor when they fight it's amazing mm, no we didn't oh. get that at all did we shocking yeah, yeah shocking i mean was there a decision behind that uh, it's, it's actually my fault again. Uh, I don't mind taking the blame. Um, it was actually really simple, that one. And that was because it's a BBC show as well as an HBO show, we weren't allowed to show the violence at the end mm. of a jaw getting ripped off. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I was sad to miss that, actually. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I'd, I, trust me, I'd have loved to have done that, but not an option. So we knew that we didn't want there to be lots of ceremony around it. You know, we knew that it was like Yorick is like, right, there's that guy, I'm going to have him and then goes and fights him because he's an animal and he's violent and that's what he does. So we knew we wanted the fight to be very functional and very real. And what we didn't want was a bunch of, you know, two big bears hitting, hitting tin cans. We didn't want a bunch of armors just clashing together. And because we had the, we'd kind of been robbed of the ability to do the violent death at the end, we wanted the fight to feel as kind of gutsy and violent as possible and you just feel more jeopardy when you've got two big lumps of flesh and claws having a fight and when they fall over you can see all the muscle flopping around and you can see all the skin move and you know everyone again people said oh it's because of money it's actually much harder to do it without the arm yes there's a lot more fur yeah anime if yeah. you don't have yeah. one yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we took we took that one on the chin and just went for it because we wanted it to feel yeah. realer and we wanted the challenge and you know, and there's something nice, I think, about the idea. You know, we did actually put the effort in again. We thought about, you know, why would bears make armor? And you don't make armor necessarily to fight other things that are like you, you know, unless you're, you know, like normally you wear armor to protect you from swords and things like that. So we thought, you know, maybe the armor is more about protecting yourself in battle for like charging lines of people and taking out and being and protecting yourself from airships and things like that. But when you actually have a fight that's amongst your people, you 
take it off and have a fight. And it's not about who's got the bigger arm or the armor they've had the longest. It's about who can fight better. Again, like like it or hate it, it's what's on TV. <laughs> um, people are going to be so happy that they're getting all these answers that they've been yeah. asking for, for right. ages. <laughs> good, good. This one is from somebody on Reddit called Tansypool, and they said, what effect, design, or shot that we're yet to see are you excited about working on? If you can answer that. <laughs> well, I can answer it. I just don't talk about season two. Um, I can talk about season three. Um, <laughs> I am really looking forward to, again, if we get to do it, one of two things in particular. I'm really looking forward to doing... Lyra and Will in the Land of the Dead walking alongside the gigantic chasm and I'm really looking forward to trying to work out what the massive swans eating the the, attacking the Malefa's houses is going to look like (laughs) you might get your goose fantasy all along actually (laughs) yes yeah every time I think about the fact that this can get to the end of the third book the fact that there is the possibility for us to see somebody's creation of the Malefa and of the weird Mm. swan guys my mind is boggled and then I end up googling to see if there's any fan art of what they look like and everybody is clearly just as confused as everybody else (laughs) what have you done to us Philip (laughs) I know I know so he's a real he really so the gift that keeps on giving um (laughs) I got my sister-in-law to do some Malefa sketches actually she's a really good artist and Mm. she came up with some really interesting things and I was like ah that's quite cool and then I um lost them um so (laughs) so there you go um but no I'm looking forward to those things in the um in the distant future of things that may be or may not be and then uh season two you can just watch it in October or November or December or whenever it comes out well we saw a teaser dropped on Twitter we were hoping for a trailer at some point soon yeah I'm sure you are I'm hoping for (laughs) I'm hoping for one to never happen so that I can just get on with the shots Uh, somebody wants to know just generally about you is there a particular movie or show that inspired your career and inspired you to get into what you're doing now I mean again I don't come from like I don't particularly like Star Wars most people in my industry go Star Wars and I watch Star Wars and I wanted to be making Star Wars I wasn't like that I liked Ferris Bueller's Day Off and the life of Brian that was my sort of jam when I was growing up and I made a lot of short films with my still best friend Paul when we were young and at school you know we were that's what we did and uh, I was going to be an editor my cousin's an editor he like edits Blue Planet and stuff like that and I was going to do that and then um, I went to university and it just kind of wasn't there was something about it that wasn't quite enough, whether it wasn't like unpredictable enough or something, I don't know. And then um, I saw, I watched the DVD extras for Black Hawk Down randomly <laughs> and saw um, how they were doing that. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. That looks really interesting. And I went and learned about it, did a course about it and then got on with it. And that's it. And then shows that really inspire me. My favorite TV show of all time is something that probably you guys have never seen. If you have, I'll be very impressed. It's called Friday Night Lights. I've heard of it. I've heard yeah, of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. It's amazing. Um, and it is just pure character stuff. It's just like pure character work, you know, really good sort of social drama. And that's that inspires me because it's just storytelling. That's all I like is just stories. Like I said, the VFX is like our, like my and, and the people that I worked with way of interacting with stories, right? And being around them. I am going to take us towards the end now and ask you a question that we ask everybody that we interview, which is, what is your demon? My demon, uh, the age-old question mm. that always has a different answer depending on the mood. <laughs> um, I often say my favourite would be a my, my if I did one of my demons of choice would probably be a red panda. Like I love those guys. Oh yeah, they're great. Like, so cute. 
it should probably be a fox just because like i'm one of those sort of people that always ends up in those weird situations with like foxes where like i was like i like drive down a road and stop at a traffic light and one will come up and like put it pause on the window and like look into my car and i'll be like this is a weird moment that doesn't seem natural <laughs> um so it should probably be a fox um and then sometimes i saw a video once of um a raccoon that tried to break into a high school vending machine and then um got stuck <laughs> and then had to be helped out. And I think that sometimes could be me as well. They're all they're all actually quite feral animals, I've just realised. <laughs> so there's a bit of a theme linking yeah, them together. There's a definite trend. There's a definite trend. <laughs> Maybe if they all crossbred, that would be me. New species. We shouldn't try it. <laughs> let's, not, let's not do that. You can it try and goes, animate it. It always <laughs> goes wrong. It's probably, it, it turns into just the Malefa. Probably, oh, yeah. yeah, right. There you, go. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. So we have another question that we always like to ask. And it kind of stems from the books. So when... Fardacorum and Lyra go to the witch's console. The last question Fardacorum asks is, if you could ask the witch's console a question, what would it be? So we want to ask you, if you could ask the VFX supervisor a question, or if you could tell them something of His Dark Materials TV show, what would it be? Hang on. So I'm talking to the VFX supervisor. Yeah. The casting directors basically went back in time and told themselves that everything would be okay. And I really like that. So. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that one. Um, I would actually say that you are going to love it and you'll probably want to do all three seasons. So take your family with you on day one instead of being away from them for a long time. Oh, that's really sweet. That's probably what I would say. That would be the advice that I would give myself if I could go back. Definitely. We have the time old question of, is there anything we haven't asked you or a story from the show that nobody ever asks you about? And you're like, damn, I wish I could tell this story. I mean, the nicest anecdote I've got is that there's this thing that everybody always says that like working on a TV show is like working on a family and it is a lot of the time, but there's something about working on a TV show that has got a lot of kids in and is about kids that is really, really lovely and really refreshing. Like I've become like really, really good friends with the Keen family because, you know, like Will Keen, it plays Father McPhail. Daphne's mum, Maria, is the um, is Daphne's acting coach. Daphne is amazing. And, you know, like, they've, they've become, like, second family to me. She feels like sort of some kind of weird niece. <laughs> um, what you do is you realise that when you're making the show and you've got people that are in, you know, like, you know, she's like 12, 13 years old, you're, help, you're kind of, like, partly helping raise them through a period of their life. When you're that age, every year is very different. I think one of the nicest things is that, like, you get to kind of be part of it and you kind of get to sort of help take people through that and it's nice you know so the family side of it is really nice everybody says that about a show and some people doubt that it's true but it, it really felt like that on this show which was really good i tell you the other thing is the misconception about visual effects people always say ask the same question which is how have computers made it easier to do visual effects right and that question makes me like i understand why the question's there but it still makes me want to murder um <laughs> And I mean that respectfully to anyone that's ever asked me that. But um, what people don't understand is that the type of people that do visual effects are people who want to push the boundary of stuff. So all they've been doing for their entire time is doing stuff despite computers, not because of them. Yes, the computers help them do stuff, but they get to the point where they go, well, this is as much as the computer can do. And they find a way of bending that computer to their will to do more. Right. And it's all done out of love right? and passion. You know, like the animators are actors. You know, the relationship that I have with them is a director-actor relationship. I tell them what I want the scene to be about. They go and they come back with a the performance. They are artists like everybody else. And it takes so much time. We worked out that to make you, I mean, you, you might have seen it when I did a Wired, or was it Wired? Or no, it was an interview for someone. Like Yorick, if you did Yorick and the other bears, it's like one person would take 700 days to make it. Wow. You know, like that's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. 
and it's a lot of love and it would be it would take less time to physically make a practical one though the people that are doing it you know like i get to do interviews and i get to talk to people about it but i don't do all the work yeah. you know i'm lucky enough to be able to help kind of orchestrate a group of really brilliant artists doing work and they're the people that should get the credit i mean you, you get a marvel film that's like 80 percent visual effects and then other people win all the all the awards you know like they're brilliant they're, the artists are amazing so um that's the thing that I'd always want to say or reinforce. Watch the credits, especially when it gets to the VFX bit and the list gets really long. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then goes twice as quick. And it's at the <laughs> <Yes>. end. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to You're us. You're welcome. Yeah, we really appreciate it. I say this every time we interview someone, but Rach and I, we only started this podcast in October and the people that we've managed to speak to has been amazing and everyone's super nice and wants to talk to us and that kind of blurs my mind. So <laughs> thank you so much. It's a passion project. You guys are, I mean, you know, you guys are clearly passionate about the show and, you know, you don't make a podcast where you read a book out and talk about it if you don't like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's true. Even you if know? sometimes it sounds like that. <laughs> no, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's about, you know, passion and about being interested in it. And that's what we're all kind of involved in. And there's no point making a, you know, you only make a TV show of something that people are passionate about, right? Yeah. Absolutely. or will be so you know that's why everybody wants to talk about it i love talking about the show everyone that put in questions a lot of people were just saying really nice things about how much they loved the show and they wanted to send their love on to you and to all the Good. team and yeah everyone and especially nice. during this time mm. when you're having to work from home which i'm sure is a whole other it's interesting situation. it's really interesting to wake up in the morning and then try and teach a five-year-old maths until noon and then stay up until one o'clock in the morning doing work oh, yeah. to make up for it. It's not fun, but it has to it has to be done. And everybody appreciates how hard everyone must be working yeah. to try and get that yeah. second season out. <laughs> That's very, very kind. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, you much. so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Oh my god. How amazing was that? So good. Oh he's so it. lovely. He was the sweetest. And just again, all these wonderful people that we're speaking to that have been involved with the TV show and every single one of them has been one of the nicest people I've ever spoken to. Like, they're so sweet. Absolutely. What Russell said at the end there about the whole series feeling like a big family, I 100% get that vibe. Everyone is so loving and so caring and so passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. And it's just such a joy to be able to talk to them and feel like a weird awkward extended cousin coming to the family <laughs> reunion and asking all the questions <laughs> absolutely and i do you know what i'm happy to play that role i love it definitely <laughs> thanks so much for listening to this very special episode of her dark materials you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at her.materialspod at gmail.com. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash HDMPod. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. I'm Faye and when I'm not talking to Russell about Lyra and Pan, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Faye, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my blog posts, although I haven't written anything in a little while, I'm on Medium at Faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not getting all my goose questions answered, I'm making designer toys, art and illustrations. You can find me over on Instagram at rachmakes, on Twitter at rach underscore makes, and over at my online shop, rachmakes.co.uk. 
huge thank you to Russell for his time and to all the people that work with him at Framestore for their hard work. We'll see you soon. And don't forget, keep telling stories and all will be well. <laughs> <laughs>